This is Geek Punk. A Google Media Production. Hello there, welcome to Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. I'm Dan Taylor, and with me as always is Joe Quickle and Michael May. Gentlemen, how are we? Hey, hey. good, good, good. Fantastic. Uh, we had a little um, a little break. Uh, there was no new episode so of the Orville on Fox Television, so there was no new episode uh, of... Uh, the Planetary Union Network. Sort Hopefully, of. well, we, well we, we we did have a little bit of an of a uh, little treat we sent out there, though. We did, and we will discuss that before the end of this podcast. Uh, what Joe and Mike are alluding to is Ensign Henson, um, and we'll discuss that a little bit more. But first, uh, earlier this week, even though we did not have a new episode, we were still working behind the scenes and we had the opportunity to talk to film and television composer Bruce Broughton. And let's go ahead and roll tape on that, Joe. We're here tonight with composer Bruce Broughton. Bruce is a multiple Emmy Award winner and nominee and also nominated for a few Academy Awards and Grammys. He's composed scores in nearly every medium from video games to film to Disney attractions. All right, Bruce, we're, we're going to rattle a few of these off. <laughs> okay. Silverado, which is awesome and as memorable to me as any Western theme, including the Magnificent Seven. Young Sherlock Holmes, Harry and the Henderson, the Ice Pirates, which I don't believe enough people have seen. And if Orville fans, uh, you know, like the Orville, they probably dig Ice Pirates. Um, what, and then Tombstone and Monster Squad. So plenty of other ones. A handful of films with Peter Himes. Um, what's it like being a, uh, that busy working and doing, uh, composing scores for music and television? Well, I'll tell you when, when you're, um, when you're doing a lot of it, that is when it's basically week after week after week, it gets to be, it gets to be kind of interesting because the question that I get an awful lot is <clears throat> what do you do about writer's block? And I just tell people you don't get writer's block because you can't afford it. I mean, it's, it's basically uh, inspiration by desperation. Um, the difference primarily between, and not so much now, but the, the difference used to be between television and, and features was that features, they gave you a little bit more time. Television, you basically had about a week to do the show, but sometimes you had three or four days. And so with television, you really didn't get a chance to think or worry about what you were going to do. You just had to sit down and do it. Features, you had a little bit more time and, and people would come and look over your shoulder a little bit more because there was a lot more money involved. But now it's very similar because television is done similarly to the way features are done. Uh, you have to make synth mock-ups, which is a um, synthesizer representation of what the orchestra is going to be if you're using an orchestra. And then you give that to the producer or, or whoever's in charge, and then they make their comments, and they send back the comments, and then you rewrite what you're going to do, and then you send that back, and then they send that back, and then you rewrite that again. You know. So if you're doing a TV show, it gets to be kind of hairy, but you're not going to sit there thinking about your next 
great idea. You're just going to find out how to write. So it's a great way to build technique in, um, as being a composer. You learn how to do very specific things. Um, uh, it's, I mean, I, I always enjoyed the work. I always thought it was kind of cool. I mean, you work long hours when you're working, um, and when you're, you know, when you're not working, you're really not working. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that part's okay too, you know. Uh, if you're working on a series and the series has been renewed, you know you're going to come back. If you're not working on a series and you're going from movie to movie, you don't know when the next one's going to be. I mean, I've never known. I've never known what my next project was, or rarely have I ever known what my next project would be. People ask me all the time, "What's you know, what's next?" I said, "I don't know." Uh, okay, so could, let me scratch that question off our yeah, list. Yeah, scratch that question off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have. I mean, having said that, I have, I have lots of things that keep me busy. Um, I don't do as much film work as I used to do, so I have lots of other things that interest me. I do a fair amount of teaching. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of concert writing. Uh, I do publishing. I do. Um, uh, I'm taking lots of trips to do uh, university sessions and things like that. You know, I'm 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 plenty busy. I have projects that I've got in the in the hopper. So um, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you're really committed to being a composer, you can really find lots of different ways of being a composer. If you're if you want to be a composer only for this or that, that is, if you want to be a composer who only does movies or, or only does video games or only does blah blah, then you're you know, you're you're going to find you're not working quite as much unless you're in one of those busy periods when you just happen to be the hot kid on the block. And that goes away fairly soon. Um, so I, I like to do as much different kinds of as many different kinds of things as I possibly can, because I like I like writing music. Um, now, how, how did you make that turn or that uh, begin that journey down that avenue with uh, film and television work? That um, that turn into what into non film stuff. Well, um, like, how did you get started in that? When you were deciding, okay, I'm going to write music or I'm going to do music, what made you what made you take the path towards film and television? Well, I I was initially well when I was in school, I got a degree in uh, music composition. I had never had any great ambition to be a composer, uh, but I was musical and I had learned an instrument when I was very young. My whole family is musical. My parents, my brother, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents, everybody could play an instrument. Everybody could read music. Um, so when I got into college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study, but I thought if I took music, I'd be able to be there in something that was sort of familiar and I'd be able to figure out what it was I wanted to do. Well, I ended up getting a, a, a degree in composition. And once I realized I was going to be a composer, I was trying to figure out what kind of music I wanted to write. And um, well, I've, I've told this story so many times, probably half of your listeners have heard it already, but I was driving down the street. All 12 of them? About, yeah, all four of them. I was about, yeah, this is for you, Amy. Um, <laughs> I was driving down the street. I was about, I don't know, 20, 21 years old, and I was listening to the radio, and something was on that really had me bouncing around the car, you know. And, I, and then I thought, you know, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to write music that makes people feel something. And within a couple of seconds, I figured it out. I thought, well, if I were a songwriter, that's, that, that music's kind of too short for what I want to do. I like to write music of length and sub substance, and, and I like to get as many people as possible in a room. And I thought, oh, movies, because you get people in a dark room, and you, um, you kind of close down the environment, so all they can do is focus on 
the picture and on the music, and the music definitely makes people feel something. So I thought, well, let's see if I can get into movies. And it turned out that I got a job shortly afterwards working for CBS television uh, that got me into television. And um, I was at CBS for 10 years working, um, working essentially in management, but I started writing shows at CBS. And uh, after I left CBS, I went freelance and then went from television into movies. And that whole time, I would, when things got to be really kind of gnarly, like when you had like a really hard job or when the job really wasn't fun or you were working with difficult people or whatever it was, I would have to think back on what it was that I wanted to do in the first place. And I thought, oh, I want to write music that makes people feel something. So I found that during the off periods that I would write other kinds of music, I would write music for people who wanted a quartet or wanted a solo or they wanted a band piece or they wanted an orchestra, you know, something like that. So I was always writing and um, always getting my stuff played. And um, as my technique grew in television and films, I could apply that to the other kind of music. The other kind of music takes a lot of development because there's no movie to help you, you know, with your with your movie. So I would take what I learned from that and take it into the movies and television. Anyway, the whole thing was it, it worked out very well. And here I am talking to you guys. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> I'm not saying, what I'm saying is that having done that is that I've had so much music over the years in so many different venues, uh, commercial venues and, and you know, concert venues, school venues, um, that a lot of people know my music. A lot of people play my music. A lot of people are aware of it. And it turned out to be a, a good career choice for me anyway. Yeah, I was uh, talking to Dan a little bit before we uh, before we started. And as I read more on your filmography, I just I basically realized how much your music had been the soundtrack of my life. Well, you know, I hear that. That's that's actually I mean, thank you. But that that's one of the, the nice things that you hear from people is that uh, if you've like in my case, I did a lot of family films. I didn't mean to. I'm happy that I did, but I just happened to do a lot of family films. I did films like um, The Boy Who Could Fly and Homeward Bound and Rescuers Down Under and, you know, stuff like that. And a lot of people grew up with these films. So I hear from people who are in their 20s and 30s who say, uh, you know, your music, um, when I hear that music, I, I just relive all my memories of my childhood and, and it, said, it brings me such warm feelings and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And um, one guy asked me one time, what does, it, what does it feel like to know that you influence somebody's life so incredibly? And I said, I, I really don't want to think about that, you know. <laughs> I'm just happy that you like my music because, um, but people do grow up with it. I mean, like I grew up with certain kinds of music and, and when I hear it, uh, it brings back memories of when I was a kid or when I was a teenager or something I was doing. Music does that. Music is very evocative. So that's one of the nice things about being a composer of this kind of music. Bruce, I'm a yeah. big Disney parks nerd, especially Orlando. Can you talk a little bit about like what you've written for those guys? Yeah. Um, my overall impression is of all the kinds of music that I've written, the two most fun jobs are animation and now this is just for me, animation and theme parks. And partly the reason is because when you get to either animation or theme parks, by the time you get to put the music into the show, they have a really strong idea of what they need, where it's going to go, how it's going to work. Um, with Disney specifically, in their theme parks, they have everything worked out. I mean, they know how long it's going to take to get a certain number of people 
outside mm -hmm. the room, into the room. Um, they they know how long it takes to empty the room. Uh, they you know they have a lot of this this stuff researched. Uh, the other thing is is that in the Disney theme parks, all the shows are different. So I've done shows where you sit and watch a show, sort of like a movie. I've done shows that are rides. I've done shows where they're sort of interactive experiences. Uh, one of the things I always looked forward to in the Disney shows was that I really could never figure out how to do it at the very beginning. Sometimes after they would tell me what the show was, I'd sit there and I'd nod my head. I'd go, oh, okay, there, yeah, this would be fun. And, and inside I'm thinking, man, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I hardly know what this show's about. How am I going to do this? You know, But you end up doing really creative things. And then you end up um, writing music that literally millions of people come and look at. You know, I mean, if you do a thing for Epcot, chances are uh, that show is going to be in Disneyland or it's going to be in Japan or it's going to be in um, Disneyland Paris or it's going to be in Shanghai or, you know, some other place. It's going to go all over the world. So you get this music playing uh, hither and yon for really lots of different people. I've done um, the first show I did for, for the Disney theme parks was at Epcot. It's a show called The Making of Me, which was a show about uh, reproduction, of all things, human re uh -huh. reproduction, with Martin Short. And um, the next one I did was with the team that I most often worked with. That was, uh, I think it was called Time After Time, or The Timekeeper. In France, it was called The Visionarium. It was very popular in Europe. And then they did, a, they did an American version in Epcot, which... They wanted an American score. I mean, both of them were American scores because they were both done by me. But I ended up doing a score for the French version. And then I did a, another score completely different for the version that was done in Epcot. The shows are about 90% the same. But I had, I think I was probably the only guy who ever did two scores for two attractions running at the same time. Um, I did, what else did I do? Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Um, oh, cool. Ellen's Ener Energy Adventure. Uh, Spaceship Earth. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, I'm trying to think of all the other ones. I mean, I've done I've done a ton of them. Um, I, I tell you this so it'll get out to all your listeners too. A couple of years ago, Intrada Records, Intrada is the company that Disney uses now to put out their albums. Intrada Records and I uh, put together a, I think it's a three CD set of my music from the parks. And we're waiting. We're waiting for Disney to release it, uh, which <laughs> I hope they will sooner than later. But anyway, all the music that I ever did for the parks is is uh, in that set, and it's it's really interesting to hear it because um, all the music is very, very, very different. Some of it would be kind of familiar, and some of it would just be different. Some of it would bring back memories of this show or that show, and again, you know, some experience you had while you were in, in the parks. Um, oh, Canada! That's another one I did. Oh, cool, um, cool. Yeah. I can't think of what's playing right now. Oh, and then the, the latest one I did was Soaring, um, Soaring Over the World, which was a uh, an updated version of Soaring Over California that Jerry Goldsmith did. Mm -hmm. so I used Jerry's material, Jerry's theme, and reconstructed a new score for this Soaring Over the World, which is a fabulous show. Um, if, if there were one show that anybody wanted to go see, I think in, in a Disney Disney Park, it would be soaring because soaring is really worth the time. Um, yeah, so they've all been they've all been a lot of fun. Okay, you okay. mentioned um, animation and um, Tiny Toons Adventures, right? It's, is the theme song you're doing? Yeah. Okay, now that piece of music uh, 
encapsulates the cartoon perfect. I mean, kid or adult, you know what you're going to get when you sit down to watch Tiny Toons. Um, the lyric, Elmira is a pain, was stuck in my head for years. <laughs> and now doing my research, it's back in there. Well, you know, I, I when I wrote the theme, I didn't write it as a song. I just wrote it as a theme song, as, as a uh, melody. And um, one of the guys put words to it. And uh, I thought, man, that's weird. I mean, how can you sing a song like that? But it turned out to be a really popular little song. And the idea of Tiny Tunes was it was a, a co-production between Steven Spielberg and Warner Brothers. And they were trying to update the old Looney Tunes shows with Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and uh, Elmer Fudd and all that kind of porky pig. So they had junior characters and they wanted to do it in the style of, as much as possible, in the style of the old cartoons. So the music... The idea was that we were supposed to get the music as close as we could to the style of Carl Stalling, who was the, the genius guy who did all the Looney Tunes cartoons. Um, and my job was a supervising composer. So I wrote the theme. I wrote, I don't know, eight or nine episodes, I guess. And then I, I found the composers to write the other 93 shows because we did 100 episodes. Um, we got pretty close to Carl Stalling often. A lot of times we didn't. but. There was one guy, Richard Stone, who went on to do Animaniacs and a ton of other stuff who was just brilliant at it. So um, we had a great time. I mean, Tiny Tunes was really a lot of fun, really a lot of fun. Hard to do. Had a lot of complaining composers because <laughs> it was really hard to do, but it was a great show to do. A lot of fun. Now, we've had executive producer David Goodman on the podcast earlier, and he vowed that there will never be a musical episode. But we know Seth MacFarlane digs his musical episodes, a family guy and such. Are you ready to tackle the Orville, the musical, should it happen? You know, if uh, I, I'm ready to tackle anything Seth would come up with. Um, he's um, he's really a great guy to work with for lots of reasons, but one of which is kind of obvious for me is that he's just very musical. Uh, we did an album about a year or so ago, which we have yet to mix. He, he did three albums in the same week with three different arrangers. Hmm. I'd, never, I'd never done any arranging before. I mean, not like that. So it was kind of like a newbie for me. But um, he did 15 songs on each album. And in one week, he prepared 45 songs to do on three albums. I mean, the guy's incredible. Um, and I, I happened by accident on The Family Guy doing um, Shapoopy, you know, the song from, uh, from Music Man. I mm -hmm. couldn't believe it. I mean, I looked at that thing. And I said, geez, Louise. I mean, that a guy would spend five or six or seven minutes doing a song like that in character. And he told me later that, that they bought the original arrangements from Music Man. So, I mean, he's a real fan of all that kind of stuff, you know. So if he had a musical program, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that I would be the guy who would get the job because it's, um, uh, I mean, he's, he's just, he's a terrific musician to work with. And, and a, you know, great guy to work with, too. How did you get pulled into um, working on the Orville? Well, he called me out of the blue about... I don't know, about three years ago, I guess. I, I mean, I knew who he was, but we'd never met. He had a, uh, an arrangement that he wanted for um, a show that he was doing at the Hollywood Bowl with John Williams and the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And um, so he asked me if I would do it. And my first thought was, I've never done anything like that. You know, I've never done any arrangement. I said, yeah, sure, fine. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe it'll turn out okay. I mean, I don't know. And it did turn out okay. And, uh, and then a little while later, he called me about the album. Asked me if I would do that with him. And I said, yeah, of course. And um, so then he called me uh, after and he said, would you consider doing a TV show? And I said, well, like what? Um, and so he talked to me about the Orville. And he said, it's a dramedy. 
Uh, he said, your job would be to do the uh, drama, not the comedy. Um, and he said, and this, this was the hook, he said, you don't have to do a mock-up, that synth mock-up that I was talking about earlier. You don't have to do a mock-up. All you have to do is just write the music, come in and record it with an orchestra, and that's it, like you used to do. And I said, great, that's it, I'm yours. You know, when are we get started? So um, the first thing I wrote was the main title, because that was necessary since they were working on format and he had to get a sense of, of what the scope was. Uh, he told me what he thought the, the right tone for the show was. He said, um, he particularly liked my score for uh, Lost in Space. He said that would be a good tone for the show. And um, so I came up with a theme and uh, did a mock-up for that so that they could make it, put a main title to it. And then uh, a month or so later, we did the, uh, the first episode. Which, as it turns out, was on again last night, I noticed. Mm -hmm. So, yes, yeah, so I did the pilot and, and, and did the main title. And um, that was how we got started. How long did and, it take to actually compose the, the theme and, and score the pilot episode? Well, the theme took a little while because, you know, it's, it's one thing to write a melody. It's, it's another thing to write a melody that's going to stick in your head. Um, and it's another thing to write a melody that's going to stick in your head and, and do the stuff that the show needs to have done. So you want a melody, you want a theme that, that's going to bring people out of the kitchen saying, oh, hey, Orville's on. I want, I want to watch what, you know, it's one of those things, something that, that identifies strongly with the show. So that took a little while, um, a few days, I guess, to, to come up with that. Uh, the show itself, I think he gave me something like three weeks. Uh, and, you know, and when he said casually, he said, oh, then you can come in, you can record it with an orchestra. He wasn't kidding. Um, we had a 70... 73, 74 piece orchestra to work on that episode, which is the biggest group I ever worked with on a TV show. Usually TV shows have a lot smaller groups. He does all his shows, a family guy and all of them with large ensembles. He likes, he likes that sound. So I say he's also a, a film music um, nut. You know, I mean, he, he knows a lot about film music scores and, and he can call them up very quickly. If he's, if he's talking to you and he wants to reference something, he goes tap, 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 tap on his phone, and pretty soon, you know, he's playing you the clip from whatever it is that he's he's trying to um, showcase. Pretty amazing. Um, now, when composing music for the Orville, it calls for a certain style of score that has been written by the likes of Alexander Courage, Jerry Goldsmith, you mentioned earlier, James Horner, all composers that I had soundtrack albums for as a kid. Did you look at their iconic sounds for inspiration, or did you try to steer clear and get your own sound? No, I, I knew I knew pretty much what the style was that I was going to go for. Um, like I said, he we talked over styles. Um, he liked Lost in Space. He liked Spaceship Earth. Um, there were a couple of things that he liked of mine. Um, I think he also referenced Jerry's um, some, uh, one of the Star Trek shows, one of the Star Trek movies. But there, you know, there are some things when you're working in the movies. One of the things that you do is you try to write music that uh, makes people feel something specifically. So you do a lot of stuff that um, just calls out a calls out a style. Like if you're doing a western, uh, you tend to use big intervals. Like um, I'm, I'm sitting next to the piano, so you get a little demo here. Uh, Silverado has those big. That's very big for a Western, you know. So, yeah, that kind of space kind of fills up the Western. In, in uh, Space Show, so, uh, 
often you'll use chords like You'll hear Horner do that. You'll hear Jerry do it. You, you know, it actually comes from Stravinsky. You know, um, so the opening of, of uh, Orwell starts with. So you have right there. It says, "Oh, this is a space show." So you do things. I probably shouldn't be giving the secrets away, but there you go. Um, so a lot of um, a lot of movies will will sort of stay in the um, the area of the association. That was what I was looking for before. So you can associate with the proper style. Um, it's like you know, westerns often have guitars, harmonicas, and things like that. And when people don't want to do a western score, but they want something new in their movie that doesn't sound like a western score, they ask you to stay away from that stuff. So so there you go. That's awesome. Well, I mean, there. Yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to a lot of these scores, you can hear some um, similarities in style. I mean, there's also the big orchestra thing. The big orchestra is part of the thing that that lends lends itself to the style, as it does in a western. Uh, you get that huge group of people blasting away. It just sounds like space. Like you think of Star Wars. Star Wars has big orchestras, you know, and choirs, and they fill up the heavens, and they, you know, that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of fun, to, you know. And and this show also has a lot of laughs in it, so and it's quirky. So it's um, yeah, it's a it's a fun show. I just wanted to ask in closing, uh, Bruce, if you had any advice to give the young composers. Uh, learn as much as you can about music. I, you know, I've done a fair amount of teaching over the last couple of years, and one of the disappointments to me uh, is the number of young composers who come into a regular composition program. I'm not talking about a film program. Like at USC, there's a film music program. That's a little bit different. But who come into a um, regular program of music composition, and their whole goal in life is to become a movie composer. Now, that's not a bad goal. Um, I mean, a goal is a goal. But what they generally do, they sort of bring the ceiling down and say, I want to write music like, and then they name a name, like Hans Zimmer, or like John Williams, or like James Newton Howard, or or whoever, you know, they put this name in and they give you the impression, and I think they firmly believe that if they can write, learn to write like whoever that person is they name, then they've passed their course just, you know, just fine. But the truth is, you need to know as much as you possibly can to do movie music. Um, a guy like John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or Alex North or Miklos Rocha, some of the old guys, as well as some of the... the um, Current guys like you know John Powell or, or uh, Harry Gregson Williams, guys like this, they have a substantial background in music because you never know what you're going to be asked to do. I mean, you you could find yourself in a day working on a movie about wild Hungarian ducks in a Thai forest. You know, I mean, and you go, well, what am I going to do here? You know, and I don't know. But one of the things you're going to do is you're going to research. So if you're going to research, you want to bring everything that you ever learned about music into play to see what this instrument sounds like, what that instrument sounds like, what instruments do I play, what kind of sounds am I going to get together, how am I going to do it, uh, how am I going to do it within the confines of the story, how am I going to do it to be able to help tell the story, because that's the most important thing that music does in the film, it just tells the story, helps tell the story. All those kind of things, and for that you really need an education. If you just rely upon the basic um, tropes that you've learned from your favorite movie scores or your favorite movie composers, 
you're going to be in some deep doo-doo, you know, with a major film or even a minor film. Um, you mentioned earlier on my credits, it's not one of my favorite credits, but it's there nevertheless, um, Ice Pirates. Ice Pirates um, was the second movie I did. Um, it was a low-budget movie, and I got it because I didn't cost very much money at the time, and I was, <laughs> no, I was happy to get it. But it was, you know, it was a difficult movie to do because it was basically a parody of start of um, Star Wars, but it didn't have the budget. So I hear I had a small budget with a fairly big movie. It had a lot of stuff to it, and having to come up with a score that was going to help tell the story so that it wouldn't look like it was just a dopey budget on this big you know, rollicking movie. And for that, you need to know what you're doing. Um, we've all done stuff like that. I mean, I, I met Al Silvestri when we were both working at, um, at what was MGM years and years and years ago. He was working on the, on the TV show Chips, and I was working on How the West Was Won. And we were learning our craft. You know, we were doing television week after week after week. He got into movies, and then his movies got bigger and better. He ended up with a really great director who did a lot of, you know, heavyweight movies. And if you look at the stuff that he did, or anybody from that time, you can see a lot of variety in their writing, a lot of variety in their music. If you look at somebody like John Williams, who's into his 80s and still writing very, very well, writing very strong music, he has over 60 years of writing music. Well, you look at some of his scores from 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't recognize it as being John Williams. But it is, you know, because he has a lot of different styles he can write. He has a lot of stuff he can pull out of this hat. And I, you could say that the same with uh, James Newton Howard or, I mean, even Hans Zimmer, who, who doesn't have that kind of an education. He has quite a lot of scope. So the main thing I would say to composers is study, just study. And then, <laughs> and then to answer the question, how do I get a job? Uh, the answer is really easy. Just find somebody who will hire you. All right, perfect. Yeah, it was great. Um, we appreciate you so much giving us some insight there, the music of the Orville and the um, industry in general and scoring films and television. Really appreciate it. Uh, Joe or Michael, you have any last thoughts? Just really do uh, echo Dan. I appreciate uh, you joining us. No, it's been pretty easy. You guys are, are pretty easy to talk to. So I, I hope that um, takes care of your questions about the Orville. I, I hope that Orville stays on for quite a while. It looks like it's going fairly strong and it's um, certainly a different kind of a show. So, Oh, we do too. Otherwise we got a podcast about something else. So um, hopefully we'll stick around again. Uh, thanks a lot. And, um, and we can uh, talk to you again when we could, uh, when you start scoring season two. Great. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you very yes. much. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. See you. Wow. Guys. What, how about that? That I, that whole piano thing he broke into. Yeah. Serenaded us. Totally jaw dropping, and I, I I really should have just had him play us out too. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we should have had him. You know, okay, let's get some uh, ringtones down so we could offer those to our listeners. <laughs> um, but no, that was a great. Uh, again, we want to thank Bruce for taking the uh, time to talk to us. Uh, a lot of insight there on uh, what uh, goes into putting together a theme song. Um, I mean, the guys. The guy's career is legendary almost. He's been around Hollywood forever, uh, beginning with Hawaii Five-0, I think. And, um, you know, great movies like Young Sherlock Holmes. you got to be a fan of that one, right, Michael? Yeah, I love Young Sherlock Holmes. Did he do Hawaii Five-0? 
He not he didn't do the theme song, oh, but he right. did. Uh, the, yeah, he was he when he started working at CBS, he was choosing uh, songs for shows. Got it. All right. All right. And I was about the, to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then also a Silverado theme, which we talked about. That it was one of my you know favorite all time westerns. Yeah, that and Tombstone. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I mean, right there, it guy nails it. Yeah. So it's Halloween Squad. season. I, yeah, I just watched Monster Squad just for the first time actually this past week. So yeah, that I, was cool. I, I love that that movie in the eighties. I I need to watch it again. I I've actually I think it's on maybe Hulu. It's Netflix, on uh, HBO. It's yeah. on Netflix. Netflix or Hulu because that because um, I was talking to Brandon who. Uh, we work with as well, and we'll talk more about Brandon when we talk about Ensign Hanson. He and I are working on a little something, and we have to watch Monster Squad, or we were planning to. Um, but anyway, again, Take thank you to Bruce Broughton. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let's move on to this last episode. Uh, real quick, though, on a side note, ratings are up for Good. the Orville with this last episode. Um you know, the first, uh, I think it's the highest rated um, episode of the Orville since the first two, which is great. And I think a lot of that is um, hopefully word of mouth is getting out there that this is a fantastic show and well worth watching. But I think a lot of it goes to Joe Buck promoting the hell out of it on the current World Series. And didn't the um, didn't the replay of uh, the pilot get something like 2.2 million viewers? Um, I'm not sure. I think. That sounds like the number that this last episode got. No, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Majority Rules, I think, got a 2.2. So what do you guys think of Majority Rules? Um, best episode since the third one, since About a Girl. I, I loved this thing. I thought it was really, really strong. Yeah, I, I think that if Reddit were a an, an Orville episode, it was this one. Oh, yeah. The, it's very Reddit-esque. Yeah, I tweeted out that right after I watched it, I said this episode may be angry in exactly the way that it wanted to make me angry. It was just, it was, it was fantastic, and I was so ticked off. But at the things I was supposed to be ticked off at, what were those things, Michael? Uh, just the whole culture of, um, uh, you know, majority rules by mob. <laughs> um, it, it just you know, and it was it was also very funny. You know the them kind of taking pokes at this, the kind of mentality and, 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 you know, you were thinking Reddit, I was thinking Twitter, but it's all kind of the same thing where we just, we all make very hasty decisions based on very little information. Um, and then just go to town on, on people yeah. about it. Death by social and, media. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, so you man, I love the bit. Like one of my favorite lines of the whole thing was when uh, they're uploading the uh, you know all the fake stuff and um, to the feed so that it makes uh, Lamar look better. And somebody asks you, "What if people try to verify this?" And she's like, "Nah, no, they won't." Yeah, nobody, yeah. Nobody, yeah. Nobody I was like, that, "That's whenever I actually uh, I said, oh, so it's Facebook." Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's another one too. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so timely. So, and that's that's what I want out of the show. Not every single episode has to be like super meaningful and insightful, um, but my favorite ones are going to be that way. And uh, and this was just just right right there. Yeah, bringing um, 
social commentary on what's actually going on in our world is very Gene Roddenberry esque. Yeah. Uh, with what he was doing with Star Trek, the original series, and Star Trek Next Generation did that as well. Um, so that worked. This episode reminded me very much of a, again, original Star Trek and original and the next generation in a, in a, in a complimentary way. Not again, not as parroting, not ripping off, not Hmm. even paying an homage to, but being poignant while still being entertaining. Yeah. And what I love about it is that like, I liked it when Roddenberry would do that too, most of the time, but he had a tendency or at least, you know, the show had a tendency under his watch to sometimes be a little sanctimonious about it. And I don't get that feeling when I watch the Orville. It's like there, it was this and, and same with about a girl. It's like, these are very big issues. Um, you know, and I think serious issues, but I never feel preached that I feel like the issues are explored and talked about and discussed, but never like, here's the right answer. Um, I'm just going to shove this down your throat. And if you disagree, then you're a bad person, which I kind of felt like sometimes with, uh, especially next generation, um, that first season, it could get pretty preachy. Well, it's hard to be sanctimonious when you're dry humping a statue. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So that's what I love about this show is that, you know, it, it, it has these very serious, uh, conversations about things but it doesn't have the conversations necessarily in a serious way but it does it in a very thoughtful way which i really appreciate good point yeah the situation that brought the dilemma um in this episode was very very realistic in a way i mean somebody getting caught um uh, dry humping a statue on video and making that sort of ignorant mistake is very natural as opposed to if you know the he had you know spouted something wrong that didn't you know that the society didn't like but you know that would have come across as forced the way it happens in this episode that starts the whole ball rolling again just played out very naturally from the discussions that the characters were having with their personal lives to their interactions, how you can see that this crew is very much more like a contemporary workplace with associates than, you know, the bridge or the crew of any of the enterprises ever were. Yeah. And you're right. Like, you know, it's how innocently he kind of like gets himself into trouble. And then, um, you know, Alara is, is almost, she almost goes through the same thing just because she's wearing the wrong hat that she didn't even realize she was supposed to not wear. Um, yeah, the, you know, was it wasn't much. Well, I guess there wasn't couldn't have been much research on there because the uh, the anthropologist that the union had <laughs> right. sent there, you know, one ends up getting executed and the other is. Lobotomized, basically. Yeah. Corrected. That's the that's the terminology they use. Corrected. <laughs> right. Right. That. Everybody on this planet wore a little badge that had a green up arrow and a red down arrow with numbers on it. And this is, you were upvoted or downvoted mm-hmm. on your actions. And this is what the mob ruled. It was an absolute democracy, they called it. This episode alone just made cosplaying so freaking easy now. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was thinking about that. We were talking earlier before we started recording about costumes and stuff for the show. And I was like, oh, how easy it would be to just, you know, be a member of that planet. Yeah. yeah and you just got to do a little. And I would go all out and make the arrows light up and too, just, you know, because I've already seen them printed. They're online. You can get the program or the plans to print them out with a 3D printer. Okay. And people are already doing it and they're floating around already. So, yeah, this is what if I needed a Halloween costume, I would just make one of these little badges up real quick as mm-hmm. if I had a 3d printer. I don't. And then dress like um, you're from the nineties. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I have not changed my outfit or attire since then, but you brought up the nineties and this, in this episode, they go to a planet that is very earth like, but it looks, you know, kind of late 20th century, early 21st century. And this isn't something new in um, these type of science fiction shows. It happened a lot, but it could be different time periods, like the, you know, the, when in the original Star Trek, where they went to the Nazi planet, when they went to the Roaring Twenty gangster planet. Um, but this Romans. one, they yeah, the Romans. This one was very similar to our own world right now. I mean, almost exactly like it, except the addition of the. Uh, up and down votes and the etc. Yeah, their phones are a little bigger. Yeah, <laughs> now here, here's well. what I want to talk about. When they do episodes like this, they're all very, almost everything looks exactly the same because it's easy production cost-wise, but they switch and up a few things or change a few things. Like, they had these bigger t- cell phones, smartphones. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that the ties that the men wore were tied differently with a different knot? Yeah, yeah, that, I've seen um, those are actually knots that people do when they're pretentious, but um, <laughs> it shows you how much I dress up. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to tie on unless I got to go to court, a wedding, a uh, funeral. I forget um, our I job forget, interview. I forget what that knot's actually called, but but yeah, and but I John, didn't even notice. John Lamar didn't have he had like a regular Windsor knot in his tie. But the other knot was like a three type of thing or whatever. And when they do little things like that, like the phones, the knots, and the ties um, are different words, like a different word for the money. That kind of brings me out of the episode. I figure they might, if they're if it's going to be so similar, they might just as well stick to it. Because, like, you know, the back of the uniform said, you know, correction... Right. No, it was like a correctional facility, so it was like jail. Yeah. But everything, you know, on the back of the back of the outfits, it was written in English. That was all the same. Yeah, like Department of Corrections, something like that. Yeah, yeah, Department of Corrections. So, but yet their license plates are different. I'm figuring just, just, just if you're gonna do something similar like this, just, just, just keep it normal. Don't you know? Don't try to add a few little cutesy things in. <laughs> Yeah, do it uh, to, a little like Star Wars, basic and credits. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, everybody yeah, uses much. the same language in general. But I mean, I don't, I don't need a show. I don't need the Orville to explain why they're speaking English. Why you know they have all the same words, but they don't understand the word lawyer. You know that sort of thing, because you know then the show would be you know eight months long just trying to explain all that sort of stuff, <laughs> and it's only got forty four minutes, and that's fine. I understand it, 
and it's just that is just my own little minor you know nitpick that i may have um you know if you're going to have a show where we see their kitchen it looked generic enough but there was that one can of coffee in the background that we've all seen at our grocery store yep yeah it doesn't bother me i don't think but i hear you but what else did we think of the episode besides my little nitpicking (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i noticed that bordas uh let everybody know he could sing so we're still gearing up towards uh, karaoke night i think yeah Yeah. even though david goodman swore to us there'd be no musical episode we don't need a whole musical we don't need a whole musical but we do need a karaoke night and i think bordas is in what would bordas sing (laughs) um i'm so pretty (laughs) the power of love (laughs) no that's clyde well like he could do do I have Clyde and don't go breaking my heart. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> That's what I want to see. <laughs> um what else we got in that episode? I'm a spaceman. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty great. Yeah. In case anybody had any doubts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, do we know what next that week's episode's about? Uh yeah. The next episode is called Into the Fold. Uh, it is uh, Ed and the crew set out to save Dr. Finn, her two sons, and Isaac. After their shuttle gets thrown into uncharted space, and they crash land on a moon that is light years away from the Orville. So we get to meet Dr. the Doctor's family boys. Now, I knew this was coming up because I've seen the two kids online. Um, I got nothing to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about that. I I... I think I mentioned either my first time I was on this show or maybe it was on uh, nerd world. I forget, but like, I, I'm really intrigued by Dr. Uh, Finn. <laughs> I'm just drawing a blank here. Um, but I'm really intrigued by the doctor. Cause I, I love that actress. And um, yeah, I'm kind of, I was, I was kind of curious to see, like she seemed like that character seems to be the most seasoned and experienced um, and and has it the most together, which raises the question in my mind, okay, that where how is she going to develop or grow from here? Um, and, and so we're kind of moving into this point period of the show now where people are kind of getting like their own, you know, special like their own focus episodes. Like this one was really a lot largely around Lamar. And it seems like this next one's going to be around her. And uh, so I'm excited about that because uh, i'm I'm very curious to see to learn more about this character and find out what flaws she might have because we really haven't seen too many out of her yet. Yeah. This, yeah and we, then the next episode is, is probably going to be more of a <clears throat> double feature <laughs> of her. And yeah. I know it's also supposed to heavily feature um, Isaac as well. Okay, cool. That'll be good too. So last week we had a break in the action cause there was no new episode and we weren't just going to sit around and, do nothing you know idle hands makes the devil's playground is that the saying or something along those lines something like that and so what we did is we got a little creative and you've probably heard it because it was on the regular feed but we produced a sort of a little radio dramedy based on and inspired by the orville called ensign henson 
And let me just say, because I had nothing to do with it, that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening with my son, um, and we were just both cracking up. It was really, really funny. Well, so, we're going to get you involved, Michael. Don't worry. Oh, no, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm happy to be involved. I'm not bucking for that at all, though. I'm just saying, um, as a complete outsider to it, uh, that was really good. Uh, yeah, we did it. We put that together relatively quickly. Um, what we want to do is Edson Henson will grow. And our plan for Edson Henson is the Orville on Fox, the television show, is only going to be 13 episodes. And so what are we going to do when there is no new Orville to talk about? Well, we've decided to take matters into our own hand and we're going to make our own new Orvilles. And what we are doing is we have created uh, this radio dramedy called Ensign Henson, and we've already played a short of sort of a short teaser that introduces the character. And we will be playing it again at the end of this episode. So if you haven't heard it yet, stick around. And it features Ensign Maury J. Henson, who is a payload specialist aboard the Orville, and he's new. He got on just about the same time as Captain Mercer did. And it's going to be his views of what has happened on the Orville through his own recounting of events. We're going to try to keep it in the same sort of light comedy-like vein. And we, I think we've, um, we've, we're planning to have a special... I, let's just say celebrity guest, right, Joe? At least one. Yeah, we've got one in the books. Uh, a character you've seen and heard on the television show, The Orville. So we'll um, have him on. And oh, branded. Yeah, it is a him. Okay. Shoot. I was hoping it was <laughs> going to be Halston Sage and that he was going to get to go on a date with Alara and then she'd break up with him. Well, that's probably going to be an episode <laughs> of Ensign. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm already working on uh, working on seeing if I can work that in. Um, the uh, voice actor we have playing Anson Henson is Brandon J. Carr, and I think he does a great job capturing um, this new. He's 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 definitely a newbie aboard uh, this exploratory vessel, and just having come out of the academy, and this is his first assignment, and. It should be fun. Uh, at least it's going to be fun for us to do. Hopefully it's fun for you guys to listen to. And what we're going to do again is um, after the season of the Orville is done on television, we are going to have this to offer you until we won't do it every week or every other week. But we'll try, try to have as, uh, a handful of episodes to sort of help tide all Orville fans over until um, season two starts on. Fox, does that sound like a fair deal, guys? That sounds awesome. Definitely a fair deal to me. And I think that this project is also uh, Dan trying to weasel his way into the writer's room for the Orville. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you know Seth happens to hear Ensign Hansen and finds it incredibly, I don't know, humorous and funny and ingenious and moving and wants to offer me a gig writing an episode next season, I... I'll check my calendar. I'll keep it open. Nothing's inked in yet, but <laughs> I do love the show, and it's been it's been fun coming up with these other things. And shout out to the person doing the computer voice too, because that was just as funny. 
That is Brandon's wife. Oh, is it? Awesome. Yes. So stick around after this episode. Listen to Anson Hansen. If you like Anson Hansen, please let us know. Also, shout out to the guy who's doing the uh, the intercom voice for the uh, lieutenant. Guy playing Lieutenant Pardo? Yeah. He's all right. <laughs> Joe is himself is, uh, provides one of the voices. He does a great job. And there will be more Lieutenant Pardo um, in future episodes. Other things that we have working on behind the scenes is Orville Observer is online now. And that's going to sort of be the website for Planetary Union Network, where we're just going to expand more on um, kind of offer the show notes type versions of what we talk about in the podcast, um, as well as other news bits, news stories. And we're trying to get fan involvement in on that one to express their views, their thoughts, share their news stories uh, concerning the Orville. So if you're interested in that, we do ask that you do check out OrvilleObserver.com. And that uh, has its own Twitter feed. And we will have links available wherever we have links available. And check that out. And we're hopefully going to grow the, uh, the Orville fan community a little bit more. Um, by sharing ideas and thoughts and stories and news rather than just the 140 are for those of you who are lucky enough, 280 characters on Twitter and Facebook post. Again, that's Orville observer. And we've already had a couple fans send in stuff and they're being posted as we speak right now. So check that out, Michael. I'm waiting for your article, Joe, you're off the hook. Cause you got to edit all the episodes. Uh. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, what else do we got, Joe? Um, well, as usual, our, our Facebook and, uh, Twitter pitch. So, uh, Facebook planetary union network and on Twitter, planetary underscore union and also Orville observer and Ensign Henson, Ensign M Henson actually. Yeah. Ensign Henson was already taken on Twitter. So, um, until we get Ensign Henson take off a little bit more, we can't really fight for that Twitter handle. But we will. We're coming for you. It's a dance on Twitter. All right. So um, here is our introduction to Ensign Henson, and we'll see you next week. Recording activated. Ensign Maury J. Henson, USS Orville, EVC-197. So, uh, yeah. Ensign Henson here. I mean, Ensign Maury J. Henson. Personal log. Star date. Wait, computer, do we use star dates? Or is there some sort of official Planetary Union central time code format that I'm supposed to use? This audio recording will be automatically designated with the proper time encoding. Okay, so there's not a space calendar with star dates or something? The Planetary Union utilizes the standard Gregorian calendar. So, no star dates. No star dates. So I just... go? You are currently recording. Wait, is all of that star date stuff gonna be on the beginning of this? You are currently recording. Uh, I can edit that stuff out at the beginning, right? I 
I don't want the Stardate stuff in there. All references to Stardate have been removed. You are currently recording. Cool. <clears throat> Ensign Maury J. Henson, personal log. Do you wish to restart the recording? Uh, wait, what? You have duplicated your initial recorded input. Do you wish to override your initial recording? Okay, just start now. You are currently recording. <sighs> Ensign Maury J. Henson, personal log. Today I start my first official assignment since graduating from the Academy. I've been assigned aboard the USS Orville, an exploratory vessel, as a payload specialist. Which means I basically move stuff, and then make sure that said stuff is secure when it's not being moved. There could be worse assignments. Turns out I'm not the only newbie on board. Apparently, this is the first command of a Captain Mercer. The scuttlebutt is that he wasn't the Union's first choice, but hey. Payload specialist wasn't exactly on the top of my choice assignments list either. So, we'll see. I just hope he's not a dick. I heard this Mercer guy was grade-A foobar. Attention all crew. All personnel not currently assigned to essential operations are to report immediately to the shuttle bay for a briefing from Captain Mercer. Well, that's me. Non-essential crew member. Gotta go. <clears throat> just hope I can remember where the shuttle bay is. Ensign Henson. Your audio level has dropped significantly. Do you wish to continue recording? Ensign Henson, do you wish to continue recording? This audio log will cease recording and be transmitted to last personnel designated. Captain Ed Mercer, Commander, USS Orville, EVC-197. Transmission sent. Goodbye. Planetary Union Network presents Ensign Henson, a fan-made production based on the Orville created by Seth MacFarlane. Featuring Brandon J. Carr as Ensign Henson, Adrian Carr as The Computer, Joe Quickle as Lieutenant Pardo. Ensign Henson is a geek punk and Quickle Media production. Conceived, written, and produced by Dan Taylor. Produced, mixed, and edited by Joe Quickle. Music by Giovanni Lodigiani. If you enjoy Ensign Henson, please be sure to leave a favorable rating and review. For more information, visit EnsignHenson.com and follow Ensign M. Henson on Twitter. Be sure to listen to Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast, and visit PlanetaryUnion.net. The Orville and all related marks, logos, and characters are owned by Fuzzy Door Productions and 20th Century Fox Television. This fan production is not endorsed by, sponsored by, nor affiliated with Fuzzy Door Productions or 20th Century Fox Television, and is a non-commercial, fan-made audio production intended for recreational use.